Welcome back everyone. I did an episode a few weeks ago about how Ireland prepared its population for nuclear war. It was really, really popular, so I decided to do occasional podcasts where I look at other countries. This week we're turning to New Zealand. Like Ireland, New Zealand didn't anticipate being directly involved in any nuclear war, but you can't ever confine something as massive and dreadful as a nuclear war into a neat little geographical area, so they still expected to be affected. That especially applies in the case of poor Ireland though, who have the misfortune to be right next to Britain, often described in the Cold War as America's unsinkable aircraft carrier. Britain would of course have been a whopping huge target and Ireland would have been affected by that, but New Zealand of course is far, far away from the assumed theatre of nuclear war, Europe. So, of course, they're not even in the same hemisphere. And that's why you've seen a lot of news articles recently about Silicon Valley billionaires buying second homes in New Zealand. It always seems like the place to escape to if it all kicks off up here. But let's look at the official advice for New Zealand. We'll see that they didn't expect to be all cosy and unconcerned if the Northern Hemisphere tore itself apart and poisoned itself in a nuclear war. As with the film Threads, which I'm always fond of quoting, which I'm obsessed with, everything connects. In our modern world especially, no country can escape a nuclear war. Those who are not involved directly can still expect any or all of the following. The drift of deadly fallouts, uh, the blackening of the sky and the climate change of a nuclear winter, the famine that would come from that, an influx of terrified, sick and traumatised refugees, the collapse of their economy as trade breaks down. The nuclear age that we live in means that there is never any safety, never again. What a lovely, comforting thought. This is the Atomic Hobo, and I'm Julie McDowell. Of course, one podcast episode can't cover the massive question of how a country prepared for nuclear war, so we're going to focus on the advice given by the New Zealand Planning Council, who undertook a massive study in 1987 on how thermonuclear war in the Northern Hemisphere would affect New Zealand. As the country is so very far south, almost as far as you can get from the main theatre of war, they actually wouldn't expect a terrible nuclear winter, according to the scientists in this booklet. Sorry, the booklet I'm quoting from, I should tell you the name of it, of course, is called New Zealand After Nuclear War, published by the New Zealand Planning Council. Of course, when we think of nuclear winter, we think of something appalling and dreadful. Uh, Nuclear winter, for those who don't know, it's a theory. Of course, it's never happened. We don't know. But the theory is that a full-scale nuclear war would create so much uh, smoke and soot, which would rise up into into the atmosphere and basically block out the sun for weeks, months, years. Depends, of course, on the size and the intensity of the war. With the sun blocked out, or at least substantially dimmed, temperatures would plummet and of course that leads to 
well, one of the main consequences is famine. Your crops can't grow. So New Zealand, according to this booklet, wouldn't be looking at nuclear winter. It's easy to imagine that a nuclear winter would take over the world. But the, the sensible scientists in this booklet said because New Zealand is so very far south, they wouldn't expect dreadful nuclear winter. There would be no black skies clogged with suits blocking out the sun, killing all the crops. Because of their sheer distance from Europe, and of course this booklet, the scenarios it outlines are all assuming that there will be a massive nuclear war in the Northern Hemisphere. So New Zealand, if that was the case, would dodge a nuclear winter. Although it depends what time of year the nuclear war occurred. If the nuclear war happened in summer, then the warmer air would allow the smoke to drift south with far greater ease. So a summer nuclear war would be particularly bad for the Kiwis, with the smoke expected to reach them in just three to four weeks after the nuclear war. But even then, they would be nowhere near as bad as as chumps up in the north who'd allowed nuclear war to take place. According to this booklet, light in the northern hemisphere could drop by 95%, whereas in New Zealand, if a nuclear winter arose, it would maybe drop only 20% in the first year after a nuclear war. So it would lead to some drop in temperature, some disruption to crops, some slowing of growth rates of plants, but it wouldn't be a dreadful, dim world plunged into cold and famine. So that's a good thing to bear in mind. Nuclear winter probably wouldn't blanket the whole world in darkness. But even if countries in the Southern Hemisphere were able to remain perky, sunny and bright, um, they could still expect, of course, dreadful economic collapse, as many of their northern trading partners would be dead or stumbling around in the dark. Now, what about nuclear fallout? That's surely the most horrifying aspect of nuclear war as it would kill you so slowly. At least if you're at ground zero, you'll be vaporised in the flash and you won't feel much. But dying from radiation poisoning through fallout would be a slow death. Your hair would come out, your gums bleed, your teeth wobble. You would fall victim to vomiting and diarrhoea, your organs shut down. It's, It's horrific, absolutely horrific. Now, Fallout, let's remember, is a a physical thing. Even though it's often invisible and tasteless, it's still there in the air. After all, fallout is dust. When a nuclear bomb explodes, of course, it pulverises lots of stuff on the ground, creates dust and rubble. A lot of that is sucked up into the huge mushroom cloud where it becomes, of course, irradiated and then, then it later descends as fallout, as radioactive fallout, back down to Earth. But of course, it doesn't just fall back down in a straight line. It can be carried far on the wind because it's sucked up so high. I can't go into the meteorology of it. I don't know about the science of it. But because it goes up so high, it doesn't just automatically fall straight back down on the exact spot it arose from. The wind uh, can carry it huge distances and it will then descend 
I'll let the infamous and ridiculed British public information campaign, Protect and Survive, explain to you what a fallout is. The most widespread danger from nuclear explosions is fallout. Fallout is dust that is sucked up from the ground by the explosion. Fallout can kill. Since it can be carried for great distances by the winds, it can eventually settle anywhere. So no place in the United Kingdom is safer than any other. The risk is as great in the countryside as in the towns. Nobody can tell where the safest place will be. So you are just as safe in your own home area as anywhere else. In fact, you are far better off at home because it is the place you know and where you are known. So, stay where you are. So, could Northern Hemisphere fallout actually rain down on the Southern Hemisphere? Of course, that scenario is explored in the novel and Hollywood film On the Beach, which is set in Australia. There has been a huge nuclear war in the Northern Hemisphere, creating so much fallout that it gradually creeps over the whole Earth. So the people down in Australia are perfectly healthy and alive, everything's ticking along nicely, but the fallout is coming for them, and gradually, one by one, all the countries in the Southern Hemisphere die because they're blanketed by this fallout. But is that realistic? According to this booklet, it is not. The idea of New Zealand being taken over by fallout from the north is not a valid fear. However, and this is my special area of interest, that was not how people felt. This booklet stresses that even though it's not a valid fear, many New Zealanders were extremely worried about that during the Cold War. There's always a mismatch between what the experts say and what people feel, which is perfectly understandable because nuclear war is horrific, it is monstrous, it is almost beyond the imagination, and so it terrifies us. And a little boffin in his white coat with a clipboard, he's in no position to (laughs) tackle such a monstrous, dreadful fear. Logic, certainly in my case, logic can't smother panic and hysteria and dread. That's just human nature, I suppose. Nonetheless, according to this study, there will be no terrible threat of fallout in New Zealand from a Northern Hemisphere nuclear war. But science tells you one thing, the human brain, its fears and its emotions tells you another. If you're interested in that topic, I strongly recommend a book which was published just a few months ago called Fallout by Fred Pierce. I reviewed it in The Economist. Uh, Take a look at my website, juliemcdowell.com, if you want to read my review. He talks a lot about this break between expertise and the feelings and fears of the population. And so we have the odd situation where the fear of fallout is greater and potentially more damaging than the fallout itself. So to try and keep a lid on any hysteria or panic or people trying to flee cities or areas that they perceive as dangerous... The New Zealand authorities plan to strictly monitor radiation levels after a northern nuclear war so that they could 
precisely and clearly reassure the population. The National Radiation Laboratory in Christchurch would be in charge of that. And there were also three radiation monitoring sites across the country. And the idea there was monitor the radiation levels very, very precisely so that we can say to people in New Zealand, look, don't worry, there is no threat from fallout. You might feel that there is, you might worry that there is, but we've got statistics here showing you that there isn't. Of course, for that to work, you need to have great trust in your government. I don't know how that would work in a world where a thermonuclear war had erupted. I think that would cause you to (laughs) slightly question the men in charge. Apart from these main radiation monitoring sites, there were other smaller local monitoring posts across New Zealand. These were set up to give local radiation reports in case EMP had knocked out communications. And again, if you're not familiar with that, EMP is electromagnetic pulse. And when a nuclear bomb is detonated, one of the effects of it is this pulse of energy which knocks out um, electricity so it would knock out your communications Whether that would affect New Zealand or not, I don't know. But if it did, and communications from Christchurch broke down, they had set up lots of little monitoring posts in local areas so that they could still, perhaps across local radio or just posters and leafleting in local towns, give out radiation stats for that area. population of New Zealand be expected to respond to nuclear war in the north? We've already discussed how experts, according to this booklet, would be trying to say to everyone, it's okay, there's not going to be a dreadful nuclear winter, there's not going to be terrible fallout. But would people still say, okay, that's fine then, and just go about their ordinary lives with no disruption? Hardly. There have been plenty of psychological studies of how people would be expected to react in a nuclear war. So they use the experiences of civilians in conventional war, uh, massive disasters, uh, the behaviour of people caught in the Chernobyl horror, for example, to try and extrapolate how people might react to a nuclear war. The amazing thing is that for lots of these studies, and the New Zealand uh, booklet agrees, people tend to show, in the immediate aftermath, a remarkable degree of calm and restraint and some logical behaviour. It's in the long term that things like panic and hysteria and mental illness would kick in. But in the short term, perhaps some kind of survival instinct kicks in. People tend to react rationally. I'll quote you from the booklet here. Contrary to popular understanding, people respond to natural disasters such as earthquakes, floods or cyclones with a remarkable degree of self-control and adaptive behaviour. Without waiting for outside authorities to arrive, they take the initiative and make critical decisions. Antisocial behaviour, hysteria, fleeing in panic and social chaos are not common responses to natural disasters. Two concerns dominate people's behaviour, ensuring that family members are safe and finding out what has happened. It goes on to say, to make sense of the disaster, people urgently seek immediate and detailed information about its nature and scope, information about victims, about secondary threats and emergency needs. 
In effect, people need to reduce uncertainty about the event and its consequences in order to decide what is appropriate for them to do. Now let's zoom in on New Zealand. The booklet quotes New Zealander responses to terrible earthquakes. Of course, that country is um, susceptible to them. It looks at the terrible earthquake in the Bay of Plenty in 1987 and says people's behaviour to that disaster matched the expected pattern. Parents immediately took their children from school to make sure they were safe and people helped out their neighbours. It says the Maori people were better able to cope as they had extensive family networks. This meant they coped better than Pakeha. And I had to look up that word. I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing it wrong, New Zealanders. Uh, Pakeha is uh, a New Zealander who is not Maori, so um, a white New Zealander, I suppose. That's the definition I got from online. So that fits in with the pattern of people helping themselves and looking to their family rather than the authorities. It's in the longer term that you would maybe look to the men in suits for um, help. But in the aftermath, in the immediate aftermath, people work and help themselves in their families and in their communities. Now, of course, we can't compare earthquake response to nuclear war response because earthquake response um, in wealthy countries especially tends to be effective. Shelter, food and medical aid is readily available and communities are rebuilt That's not the case, of course, with nuclear war. If you're talking about the long term with nuclear war, then for some countries there is no long term. If it's an all-out thermonuclear war, for some countries there's no question of long-term recovery or rescue. Everything would stop. Everything would die. Everything would fall apart. No one's coming to help you. But for New Zealand, not directly affected by nuclear war, how could the people there be expected to respond? The booklet says, In the first few weeks after nuclear war, New Zealanders would experience a number of severe psychological pressures, especially those associated with loss and fear. The destruction of so much of humanity, the deaths of hundreds of millions of people in combatant countries, and the abrupt loss of ties with people in other countries would overwhelm many with traumatic feelings of loss and dislocation. The survival of relatives and friends in the Northern Hemisphere would be unknown, perhaps forever. There would be immense grief and shock. People might have strong forebodings of death, even though they were alive, and outwardly, their local environment appeared normal. For some people, the dislocations and losses would represent the end of everything, and they would sink into apathy. Just as people grieve over the death of relatives so too would there be a process of grieving over these losses. There's also the question of fear of a nuclear attack. Uh, Politicians in New Zealand could insist until they're blue in the face that there will be no attack on New Zealand. Nuclear war is not imminent. But if the people of New Zealand are watching their TVs and seeing destruction and war break out in every other familiar, famous city in the Northern Hemisphere they might naturally expect it to spread to them. And so we might see mass unplanned evacuations from New Zealand cities and any supposed target areas. That would mean gridlock on the roads, panic and injuries and all these mass evacuations. Perhaps there would be looting and rioting as people try to stock up on food and medicines before this anticipated nuclear attack. 
There would maybe be social unrest and maybe violence in small towns and rural areas as those residents object to a massive influx of hysterical, terrified city dwellers. Then there's the question of the economy. That might sound quite boring in the context of massive war and destruction, but New Zealand could see economic collapse even if they're not directly affected. If people are fleeing the cities, then it means they're not going to be turning up for work in the morning. So businesses could collapse, wages go unpaid. Even if you had wages in your pocket, what are you going to buy? The shops might be empty, having been looted, and there might be little chance of quickly restocking the shelves because supply chains might collapse and trade links with most of the Northern Hemisphere will surely be severed for months, years, maybe forever. That means shortages not just of food, but of other essentials like medicines and petrol. So are New Zealanders going to be turning up at hospital to be told, sorry, we don't have the drugs that you need to keep you alive? Can you even get to the hospital in the ambulance if there's no petrol left? When we look at the case of New Zealand in a Northern Hemisphere nuclear war, it does seem like dropping a stone into a very calm pond. The stone might be dropped into the Northern Hemisphere, but the ripples which are sent out are still going to reach New Zealand. And we're finished for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you have any questions or comments, you can get me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell or my Facebook page, which is called Nuclear Britain, or via my website, juliemcdowell.com. Let me also thank the good people who donate some money to the podcast each month through Patreon, and that helps keep everything going. If you want to donate, visit patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And let me say a special thanks to Jacqueline Brick, Jonathan Abelins, Lainey Peterson, Peter Mars, Alan Christie, Helen McHale, Ewan McLeod, Douglas Greenshields, Colin McGee, Sean Milson, Brian Outlaw, Damian Ryan, Peter Lee, Linda Woolnuff, Kevin Butler, Andrew Key, Lee Pierce, Simon Allison, Sean Judge, Paul Maxwell Walters, Wynne Grant, Ben Capper, Mary Freer, Phil Catling, Steve Sace, Claire Brennan, Paul Jonathan Viner and Gordy McNair. <laughs>